Hey, what's going on, everybody? Today's episode, we're going to dive into The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. I'm your co-host, Nelson Santiago. And I'm your co-host, Randy Santiago. And this is our first episode. So, welcome, everybody, to the first episode of Homies of Lit. Today, we'll be talking about The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. Uh, we're going to start briefly by introducing the book. Like, so the book is a, it's a coming-of-age book. Um, anyone who's read that can easily get that from the first few pages. You can tell it's a young girl talking to you. Um, and it kind of follows her through a series of vignettes, about, like, maybe 30. And it looks at her experiences through throughout inner-city Chicago in a neighborhood that she doesn't name. Um, but when you look at the history of the author, she's talking about Humble Park, um, which you can kind of get from certain references that she makes in the book and specific streets she names also. Um, but yeah, the book, it focuses a lot on things like identity, belonging, um, poverty. So see, these are some things we're going to touch on um, as we move throughout the episode today. Yeah. So for those of you guys who don't have any idea what a vignette is, uh, you're not alone. Um, I had no idea until I read this, this book. Um, so by textbook definition, it is a brief evocative description, account, or episode. Um, to put it in more, you know, simpler terms, let's say, um, it's like small chapters. Um, anywhere in the book, you'll open it up and you'll see that uh, each vignette is no more than two, two and a half pages long. So each one is essentially like just a really tiny story within the book and they just kind of all frame together to make like a bigger narrative. So it's in essence, a really small chapter. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. It's kind of like a small chapter to a story, even just a small story in itself. Like what's nice about vignettes is that you can just pop in, you can read a page and a half, two pages, maybe three, and you get an entire story there. And each one has its own message, um, which, we thought was kind of cool reading the book or while reading the book. Yeah. You know, like I, looking on the book, you know, someone makes a comment about, you know, just being able to just like jump in at any point and being able to just like jump right into the story. And like, it's literally the case. You open it up. Chances are, if you open up the book randomly, you're either going to be at the end of a vignette or the beginning of one. And you can literally just jump in there. And it's like, you don't have to have read any of the other ones to know what's going on in that one. Like you said, it's pretty much like a story in and out of, like, it's a little, like a tiny little story inside the book, you know? Exactly. Um, so I want to start off by briefly talking about the author, because we did have an introduction. So we're reading the 25th anniversary edition for those of you who are interested in picking up the book afterward, which I hope is all of you. But so the author, Sandra Cisneros, she's a Mexican descent, but was born in the States. Spent her childhood in Chicago, which again, when you, um, she says that in the intro, but in the book, it's never explicitly stated. Um, but if you look up some of those streets of which she gives um, sometimes specific corners and intersections, you'd easily come to that conclusion. But one reason we chose this book for the first one is because she, she wanted to focus on writing a book that included people who typically don't like to read which is the purpose of this podcast, right? Introducing people who feel they don't like to read or feel left out by mainstream literary culture, a space to find themselves. And she made that her purpose when writing this book. Um, and she explicitly states that in her introduction, 
find that passage for you real quick. Um, so on page 17 of the intro, again, 25th anniversary edition, she says, referring to herself in the third person, she wants the writers she admires to respect her work, but she also wants people who don't usually read books to enjoy these stories too. She doesn't want to write a book that the reader won't understand and would feel ashamed for not understanding. So again, like going to, going beyond um, what she needed to to write the book, and she could have simply just written a book with these stories without really taking those readers in mind and could have written in a language that, I don't know, maybe considered more highbrow for some people, but inaccessible for people who grew up in the inner city or people, you know, who just didn't have a proper education. Um, so we found that admirable. So myself, personally, I'm one of those people who's not a reader. Um, I just really don't read. Um, actually, I didn't even read this book in school when I was supposed to read it. So I'm just not, really not a reader. Um, so <laughs> reading through it, yeah, I mean, it's pretty, you know, again, back to the vignettes. It's like you could jump into this book. Well, for starters, you could probably knock this out in a day. And it's really, yeah, well, you can definitely. knock it out in a day. It's not long. Even if you read the whole thing, it's still not that long. But like, if you were like really pacing yourself, just if you read one vignette a day, it, it's not overwhelming at all. You know what I mean? Um, it's like super. I want to say straight to the point. You know, the story is you know start and end, two two and a half pages. Um, so it was definitely a a good starting point. You know, for all all you listeners coming in that are you know one, if you're like me, you didn't even read the book when you were supposed to read it, and you ain't read nothing since, right? Because I didn't read anything in school. And so I most definitely didn't read anything when I left school. So um, it's a good start. So for those of you who are, you know, reading this and just trying to get into the flow of it, we'll join the club because I'm also just getting into the flow. So, like, the next book we read will be the next book I've read since this one and so on. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely it's definitely a good book to get you into the flow of reading again. I mean, because like you said, it's very straightforward, like, there aren't like very heavy layers hidden in the language. She's not, I mean, she does use certain literary devices. Like sometimes she uses rhyme schemes. Um, it's a lot of metaphor, like in the chapter where she talks about hair, like comparing the hairs of her and her family members and how they kind of identify with that and how they identify each other that way. Like saying one relative has nicer hair than this other person. So that makes them nicer. Like just thinking of, I mean, for instance, any person of color, particularly any black or maybe Puerto Rican people, right? Like we have, or even me and you, like our hair is curly and a bit kinkier than some people's, right? And so in one person's eyes that may be deemed as beautiful, another person's eyes that may make us seem more dangerous, right? Because of associations with people from our communities. Uh, a book that could very easily um, connect people, you know, based on those experiences. I think she did that very well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so this is um a quick read, like I said, but again, I do feel um obviously if any of the listeners coming out of Chicago, you definitely you'll get a feel for this one. You you'll definitely be able to relate. Um and again, if you did read it in school, um, you know, it's probably elementary school, right? Because that's when I remember having to read it give it another go. You'll definitely be able to relate to a lot more now than you were when you were probably not trying to read it to begin with. And, you know, we, we pretty much are really just going to hit the points that, that I don't want to say struck a nerve, but more so like we got on level with these things that, you know, things that popped, whether it's, 
because again, we're from Chicago. We're from Humble Park, actually. So it's going to be more like obviously things that remind us clearly of the neighborhood, but also you'll find that um, there's just certain things they say in here, which, you know, we'll touch on that, you know, you could immediately associate it with someone, you know, and that's another reason why this one was like the, the best starter, because this is where you find that you can relate to, you know, works of literature. You know what I mean? Like, it, like when you read it, you could find things you relate to. Because, you know, sometimes, again, back to like when I was in school, I'd be reading books and I had no idea why I was reading them or, you know, rather listening to them reading my loud. But there was no relation, you know, for some things and some books in general you just can't relate to. So this one is definitely one that if you're from, you know, inner city period and especially if you're from Chicago, you'll get a lot of references out of here. And you there's everyone knows, you know, everyone could put their own name to the characters in this book. Yeah, exactly. You'd still feel like, you know, like it's talking about your experience, but it's talking about the experience, right? Like it's one of those things like where every character like you interact with, even the characters that you don't like because you're like, man, this dude's shady or she's kind of grimy for selling us for down to out that way. But then, you know, like what she does well, Sandra Cisneros, is even I believe it's a character of Sally who she puts Esperanza to an experience that leaves her uncomfortable. Right, like we don't want to give away too many things about the book, but like sexual assault comes up several times in the narrative. And you kind of, when you're first reading it, you resent this character, but then when you see her circumstance that she's forced to be in a relationship she doesn't want to be in, that she's dealing with abuse in her relationship, that you begin to see that like there are so many layers to these circumstances. And I think a lot of people who come from backgrounds like ours, like when you're talking to people who don't understand it, you feel like you constantly have to unpeel all those layers over and over and over again. But also, like, you can experience it so much that you forget that other people have layers, right? You forget that other people are going through these things. So I think, like, that's one of the beautiful things about writing, right? Like, it connects in that way those dots that you may not, you know, when you're dealing with those own circumstances yourself, you might not be able to draw those connections. Or at least, you know, to look past the fog and actually see them clearly. Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, it's also, you find that, yeah, everyone has their own different story, but also everyone can all relate at, like, at a certain point, regardless of where you're from, there's something in here that you can grab and just, you know, you could find a way to relate to something and someone else can. And the fact that, you know, a work literature is just like this, so many people can find something to relate to. You find that, Maybe when you were going through whatever it is that you could relate to in this story, you probably felt like the world was so, like, you know, you were so isolated from the world, but chances are there were so many people that you know personally that were in that exact same, you know, in that exact same moment at some point in time. Might have been at the same point in time as you, but you find that a lot more people could relate to that than you originally thought, you know? So it's almost like you find that you were not alone in the situation as far as, you know, it's not unique only to you. It's not a struggle that only you know. And I know a lot of people uh, like struggle with like feeling isolated, you know what I mean? And that no one can relate to them. I'm, me personally, I, I, I still say that all the time, but it, when, you, when you're reading something like this with someone you have no idea, you don't know. And, you know, the book came out, I don't even know when it came out, to be honest. Came out a long time ago though. This is the 25th anniversary edition and it wasn't this year, so. Came out in 1984. You know, 
exactly. I was born in 97. So this book related to me before I was born. So that being said, you know, people aren't alone, you know, like there's a lot to relate to. And um, it's funny because you read this book and you start hearing about, you know, obviously, like you said, she, she never, you know, directly says like, this is the Humble Park area. But being from there, you know that that's what she's referencing. And think about it. She's talking, she wrote, this book came out in 84. It's 2020 now, but I could still make that connection to that same neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that really, like, it really points out good writing, right? Like, she was able to capture that. But also, like, again, showcases, like, why books like this are important. Like, because people in these areas, like, from these backgrounds, they go through the same shit generationally over and over and over again. And they still, like, we can look at this book and we can point out, like, this building is still run down. The Puerto Ricans are still struggling. The Mexicans in Chicago, they're still struggling, right? Like, it's literally the exact same circumstances. I mean, what? This is 36 years later. Like, and we're still experiencing the exact same things. Like, I think that's what makes a book like this so powerful. But, I mean, and going off that note, um, one of the things we want to talk about today was the idea of belonging to a place. Because... I mean, the house on Mango Street, the fact that, I mean, we'll think about title. This titles are extremely important when we're talking about literature, right? People don't just choose any words. If, you know, if they did, then titles wouldn't mean anything. So we know that the house on Mango Street is the most important thing in this book, but we have to figure out why. So we have some ideas as to why, but one of the most important ones is like, at least the way I see it, and thinking with something she mentions in her intro, which is very prominent in Chicago, that is gentrification. She has a quote where she says, talking about herself in 1980, says, it's Chicago, 1980, in the down at the heels Bucktown neighborhood before it's discovered by folks with money. It's like that, when I read that, literally, it's the first page of the introduction, like two paragraphs down from her photo. Like, I just thought of the Chicago we're experiencing now. Right, like Humble Park doesn't look like Humble Park did even five years ago. Logan Square is not the Logan Square that existed when this book was first published. Bucktown, you know, Bucktown is filled with people with money, but they ain't Puerto Ricans there, they ain't Mexicans there, they ain't black people there. So we wanna talk a bit about the idea of belonging. All right, so there's this, on page 28, we have a vignette called Those Who Don't, which really stood out to me because there's this, if you grew up in the inner city, uh, no matter which inner city, as somehow I feel like people from the inner city all over the United States, if you grew up in New York, New Jersey, LA, Houston, like we all talk the same somehow. Like we share the same language, even though we've never met each other, we've never stepped foot in each other's neighborhoods. And there, there might be a difference of a few terms here and there, you know, some of the slang, but overall, like the vernacular is quite similar. Yeah, the... And yet, those who don't, it's only three paragraphs long. Like, it kind of focuses on that phenomenon of people from different neighborhoods being afraid to go into other people's neighborhoods. And I think, in part, it has to do with, like, us believing that, like, our neighborhood is bad, but someone's neighborhood has to be worse because we can't live in the worst conditions because then that would mean that we don't have a chance at all. Um, so I'm going to read this real quick those who don't those who don't know any better come into our neighborhood scared they think we're dangerous they think we will attack them with shiny knives 
they're stupid people who are lost and got here by mistake. But we aren't afraid. We know the guy with the crooked eye is Davy the baby's brother, and the tall one next to him in the straw in the straw brim, that's Rosa's Eddie V. And the big one that looks like a dumb grown man, he's fat boy, though he's not fat anymore, nor a boy. All brown, all around, we are safe. But watch us drive into a neighborhood of another color, and our knees go shakety-shake, and our car windows get rolled up tight, and our eyes look straight. Yeah, that is how it goes and goes. Like, so again, it's only three paragraphs long, but you get the idea that it's like, oh, we know everyone in our community, and our community is safe because we know the people there. And it doesn't matter, like, if they're black, they're brown, they're white, like, we know them. But as soon as we go into a neighborhood, and she makes sure to tell you that it's a neighborhood of a different color. So it can be white, it can be black. If you're not brown, it can be brown, right? And it causes this tension in people. And I kind of wanted to talk about that because I feel like that's something we, I mean, growing up in the inner city, you definitely navigate, even sometimes on a block-by-block -block basis. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a big one. Um, you know, um, I'll zero in on the block by block basis. You know, growing up, you know, even leaving school, you find that you're walking, you know, there's like a block, everything's separated by blocks over there. You know, there's, there's a group of guys hanging out here, a set here, a set there, you know what I mean? And a block is pretty much the differentiator between, you know, whether or not you're safe because you know these guys here. And you might know the other guys, but they're not friends with those guys and you're friends yeah. with them. And there's people who are extremely neutral in that area where they're, they're really not doing anything, but they find themselves walking just across the street and they're already in an unfamiliar area. And they're, yeah, they're worried about getting robbed, you know, stabbed, shot, you name it. And a lot of these things, you know, have happened, of course. But it goes back to, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But a lot of people don't even leave their their block. They go to yeah. the one store on the corner. They go to the grocery store around the corner. They stay in their, you know, their life is in their zone. They're boxed in. Yeah, socialize on the front porches. Exactly. And, you know, their friends live on that block. And, and you'd see, you know. That's another thing. You know when someone's not from around there. You can see it on their face. Yeah. They're they're worried. They're looking around. Everybody's a suspect to them. And it's obviously not how, you know, you'd expect to live your life. That's probably not how you want the world to work for you. But that's definitely how it is. And going back to again, like you said, this book was published in 1984. It's 2020 now and Anyone I grew up with, and if they're still there, and a lot of them are, it's exactly the same. Exactly. And even, like, even growing up there, right, like, in, in my circumstance, like, having left for college, um, like, going back there, like, people who have seen you all your life, they see you come back there after not having seen you in, I don't know, maybe three, four years. They recognize your face, but suddenly, like, even you feel as though you don't belong there. Because, like, there's, there's a degree of separation. You don't really know what it is, but the energy is different, right? Like, you spend so much time out of the inner city that, like, the world around you changes. Like, your world, your individual world changes. But going back into that, like, it definitely instills, like, that fear. It's like, even now, like, I don't feel, I never felt comfortable in the inner city. Like, 
I mean, hell, I don't feel comfortable just about anywhere I go. And I think that's in part because of my upbringing in the city. Like if I go to school in Iowa in a town of 2,000 people, I don't feel safe. If I go right now a town of 12,000 people in California, I don't feel safe. In Madrid, I don't feel safe. Like in some ways it feels ridiculous, like that people have this fear in the inner city. But when you move beyond that, as a person of color, coming from the background that you have, right? Like if you've had negative experiences with police, for instance, which most of us have, like navigating the world, like I always, I always tell my friends that, I mean, Sherrod did not grow up in the inner city. I mean, a lot of them grew up a lot nicer than, I mean, most people I'll probably ever meet in my life. But like, I always tell them like, despite like how unnerving being in the inner city is like it's the only thing I know and it's the only world I know how to like truly navigate and I think that's something to speak on like just how how much it doesn't change and how much you really have to become that right it's not even adapting to it because like everything else in the outside world that's the adapting but back in the inner city it's like that's you like you can't escape that yeah for sure I mean, I'm, I, I still live in the city, right? But I, I've lived outside of the city for a time. Um, I personally, well, I've had some pretty bad experiences inside the inner city. Um, I will say, you know, I've, I've, I was out there in Iowa, and it does have a different feeling, won't lie. Um, it's crazy, I, in my personal experience, because uh, over there in Iowa, it's just, it was definitely a smaller town, for sure. Bro, that, that shit was smaller than our, you know, yeah, our immediate I mean, area, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, uh, that's smaller than our old neighborhood, right? But uh, back to, you know, this chapter, um, or vignette, I should say, not chapter. Um, those who don't, it's kind of like that. It's like we just went to a different neighborhood, you know? And um, everyone knew it. And they looked at us like they were in our neighborhood, like they were in a different neighborhood. You know what I mean? They gave us a look like we were going to, you know, pull out the shiny knives. And I guess... I'm not going to say that I was, I was uncomfortable, but it definitely, I know it didn't feel like I was in the inner city. You know what I mean? I, I, I was immediately alienated when I went out there, you know? I see that's, um, that's the point though, right? Like in what way do you feel uncomfortable? Cause I think like when people talk about danger, we always think about physical danger, right? And in the inner city, sure. Like, you know, like there's a psychological component related to like the physical and that like, oh, you're like shaking and shit because you're like, this might happen. These dudes might jump me. They might chase me. I might have to run through all this. But like in Iowa, like the difference is, I mean, and I think you pointed to like almost immediately, like I felt alienated, ostracized, like, like that's psychological danger, right? Because it makes you think like, do I not actually belong here? And even going back to like her saying, she never said black, she never said brown, except for like us, we're all brown, but when we go to a neighborhood of a different color, like our legs start shaking, right? It's like, are we always in physical danger? We being, you know, whoever her general we is, or is it also a mental like psychological danger? And if that is the case, like, what does that mean? If we feel ostracized, like, what does that mean exactly? What could that mean for you in general in that community? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, again, inner city, for me personally, uh, the only danger I worry about, again, is the physical danger, right? And uh, mind you, I'm not, at this point, which is pretty sad to say, like, I'm not afraid, because if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? Over there in Iowa, 
yeah, I wasn't worried about a, a damn thing physically. You know what I mean? And one of that, one of the main reasons behind that was, is because they looked at me like, you know, you could see that they felt like they were in the inner city. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they were like, you know, and I came there with my inner city demeanor and I'm looking at these people, you know, in the stores and they're looking at me like, yeah, like I'm about to pull a knife out or a gun and straight rob the grocery store. So I'm like, well, isn't this something, you know, cause I've navigated the neighborhoods my whole life. You know what I mean? And people look at you and if someone's got a problem, they're going to make it be known, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas these people, they're just staring at you. Like they're waiting for you to do something bad. Here I am my whole life, pretty much waiting for someone to do something bad. So I go there and yeah, like you said, it's, I don't feel like I'm in physical danger, but I don't feel, I feel like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be here. And not that I'm worried about being there, but they're clearly worried about me being here. And exactly. It's uh, I, my personal, like, I guess the way I would word it, it's almost like, it's like we've traded with them. It's like when we, when we lock eyes and you could see they're like, they're afraid, right? It's almost as if we've just exchanged the discomfort. They're worried about, me doing something and I guess invading their sacred space or whatever it could possibly be. But I also feel like, should I actually be here? Not because I'm worried or afraid or anything, but like they just, it's not clicking. I'm like scaring these people. Like, I, you know what I mean? They're like you said, shake their knees are shaking. They're worried. And everyone's staring. It's not like one person, you know, maybe he's just paranoid. He's like the guy in the neighborhood. He's just tripping. Right. But everyone, you, you know, it's like, you just got dropped somewhere. You're not, um, yeah, it's like you're not human anymore. It's like you're on an exhibit and shit. You know what I mean? You're like zoomed in on that. And so, yeah, it's it's just discomfort, right? You you don't feel like that's where you should be. But also, you just, again, it goes back to you're so used to navigating. You're so used to the in, inner city. So you've just been ripped outside of your comfort zone. And there's nothing familiar anymore. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a different... Uh, it's different. You know what I mean? On the streets, you worrying about getting shot or stabbed, you know, the things that like the vignette mentions, you know what I mean? But when you go outside of the inner city, those aren't necessarily the same, uh, the same concerns you have, but you're not, you're not free of concern though. Yeah, actually, I guess really depends on the person. I would argue those other concerns are a little bit more, I would say, after a while impactful like they 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 leave more of a scar i would say but that's because you've become numb to what the inner city you know entails right but at the same time it's it's all the same all we're doing is we're feeling the same way those people do when uh, you know when someone comes into a neighborhood that's not theirs that's all we're doing whether it's going from logan square we'll say logan square to worker park that shit will feel the same these days but you know <laughs> yeah. whether we're going you know we're in the mckinley park where you know where i'm at we're in mckinley versus wicker you know what i mean there's a difference you can feel it you know it's the same thing you're just going to like a totally different world but you have that same feeling like you're just you don't know nobody there. for our community i mean even wicker park like i was doing research on this other day up until the late 80s wicker park was puerto rican and then you know what happened like so i things like they're it's just when there's a dynamic created and she mentions it again, like, you know, it was down at the heels until white folks with money discovered it. And then suddenly it was a place to be. And it's like when we're walking into from the inner city going, say, to Lincoln Park, and we can't enjoy the splendors of that neighborhood 
because one, we're being made to feel as though we're invading by looking the way we look. And two, we don't have the economic capital to do so, but they can walk into our neighborhood. They can take the neighborhood financially. They can rebuild the neighborhood. But the only people who do not get to benefit from that are the people who struggled there. And I think that's the thing, like the inner city, like I always tell people like struggling alone ain't as fun. Like struggling has never been fun. You know, it's like that idiom, like, you know, I can laugh at my pain, right? Like when you go through things, I mean, we do it all the time when we talk about, you know, maybe getting jumped or maybe some dumb shit that we got in trouble with mom for, right? Like that we used to be upset about, but now it's like, you know, that's whatever. I've gone through worse things. Like, or, you know, life has gotten better since. So I don't really have to worry about that. But like, again, in my case, like I've, I've achieved a decent amount of things, like since going to college, like I've gotten to travel, do all these things. I'm like, I'm always coming back to Chicago, coming back to the United States, and I'm always relaying these stories to people, but they've never once experienced them with me. And while I'm experiencing these things, like I'm constantly being questioned about the way I talk, sometimes about the way I dress, about the music I like, like about why it's so aggressive. And then you suddenly have to become an urban dictionary. You have to defend your neighborhood. You have to defend your culture by, while also acknowledging that, you know, some of the things that happen are terrible, right? But it's like, if we just say these people are terrible, if we just assume if, you know, if I'm in rural Iowa and you come into my town and I just assume that based on how you're dressed and how you're walking and how your hair looks, that you're a threat, then we're never going to solve anything, right? We're never going to actually understand. I'm like, at the end of the day, you can say whatever you want about the inner city and we can say whatever we want about rural Iowa. But unless you actually take the time to go into these places, then you're not going to understand. And I think the problem is a lot of times is that we're the only people that take the time to go into those places. And I mean, in some ways we might grow for it, maybe, but I feel like in a lot of ways it damages us because, I mean, it's like you said, you feel like you're being dropped into another world. You're not told how to navigate it. You're not coached that way because the people from your background the people in your life, they also don't know how to navigate that world, but they're hoping you'll figure it out. And if you figure it out, then you have to tell everyone else how to figure it out. But that's assuming you did, right? It's definitely, I mean, yeah, like I, I reread that vignette like maybe five times and went back to it several times. And even, you know, we got to the end of the book, went back to it again, because, you know, that belief of like, you know, what do I belong to? And am I content with what I belong to? And once I get out of that space, like, should I feel obligated to go back? Because I didn't have a good time there. Like, you know, why would I go back? Like, I think that's definitely a question that runs through people's minds, but it's never, who do you talk to about it? You talk to people back home, they're going to say, of course you should come back, right? You talk to people who haven't experienced it, they're going to say, no, nah, you should stay away. Like, it's dangerous there. Like, you know, or, you know, there's a lot of poverty there. You've been hurt. But what's, what's the middle ground? And I think that's our next discussion point. Yeah, and I, I for one, can really just say I have no idea. <laughs> and it's really a question that I ask myself all the time. Um, and just to touch on, you know, um, what you were saying, like, you know, it's we go somewhere and no one knows how to figure it out. No one knows how to navigate it, you know, and we have to figure it out, right? And assuming we figure it out, we would be the ones who have to relay that on, you know, back to where we came from. But like you said, do you want to? Should you? And of course, like you said, everyone in the neighborhood's like, yeah, of course, come back. 
anyone who's not from there is like, no, dude, why, why would you do that? You know? And one thing I could say about my experience at, at Iowa is, I mean, I liked it over there. <laughs> I was there a while. So the first time I went there, I went to the store, everybody looking at me, I'm like, you know, what's up with these dudes? You know what I mean? Like, is this about to go down? And clearly, <laughs> it was not about to go down. Yeah, but your um, mind's still there, you know? Like, you know what you, I mean? You just came from the <laughs> city. Yeah, yeah, dude, I literally drove from Chicago, you know what I mean? And then me personally, um, obviously, as you know, um, my experiences in the in the inner city have been really, really violent. You know, I've been shot multiple times in the city, um, you know, stabbed, et cetera. So I open up, you know, that vignette and it's like, yeah, I could understand, you know, to, to a certain extent why they're worried about getting stabbed with these shiny knives. And that goes back to why somebody would tell you not yeah. to go back. Because I hear it all the time. You know, I, uh, again, I live in Chicago still, but I definitely don't spend much time in my old neighborhood. I, you know, I'm on I'm working on my own things and I definitely don't have that kind of time to just be hanging out like I used to. And I'm so glad that I'm not, you know, confined to yeah. you know, a three, four block Honestly. radius in all directions. You know what I mean? So that's cool, you know, but I also feel like, again, small experiences, you know, whether it's, I went through my time when I, you know, I was like, I'm going to join the National Guard, all this stuff. And I was dealing with that for a while. You know, like you said, you went to school. I, um, I did branch out. And it's crazy how just even though I'm in, I was in Chicago or in Illinois, whether it was Displains or whatever, leaving the inner city and leaving the neighborhood which you came from is like a whole total different world. And that's just uh, the craziest thing you could think of. And it's like even just leaving and yeah, you know, you don't associate with your people like you used to for a while and you, you feel different. And when you come back into, into that, it's like, it just smacks you right in the face. Right. Like, cause the craziest part about it is, is that if you come back right now, it's the same as when it was when yeah. you left. It's like, I mean, it's like growing up in a small you town. You know what I mean? Yeah, pretty much just a real hectic one. Cause you know, I pop in sometimes if I'm passing by to go see somebody or something that, um, yeah. but why would I be passing by? Right. It's a funeral. That's the only thing that changes is that there's less people, but it'd be nice to know, like if there was less people because they left, but that's not the case. Right. And this is obviously speaking from a personal experience, but that goes, and that is the, that art that begs the question. Okay. If you figure it out, let's say we've figured out how to navigate world outside the hood, right? Life outside the hood, the rest of the world. Right. Wouldn't we want to give this knowledge to the people who are there, the people who couldn't leave so that the next time we hear about them or the next time we cross paths, it isn't at a funeral. Well, the, the funeral is obviously the worst part. Obviously you have people yeah, in jail and stuff poverty. like that, but it's like, again, I was just about to touch on that. Let's assume that, you know, you didn't, you, you, you know, your friends weren't gangbangers or nothing, you know what I mean? So you don't have to worry so much about them going to jail. You know, let's hope that nothing bad happens to them, no straight bullets or nothing like that. Let's say they're on the less violent side of these inner city neighborhoods, because let's not say that all inner city yeah. neighborhoods are like totally violent. Again, back on my personal experience, I had a real violent upbringing, again, been shot, been stabbed. So that's that's just leaning on my personal experience. But that's not that's not everyone. But let's say the ones who are in poverty, the ones who, you know, 
their parents been poor and their parents' parents were poor. And you know what I mean? This is generational poverty. You know, everyone's talking about generational wealth. Well, let's talk about generational poverty, right? What if, you know, we're figuring it out and we're, you know, we're reading, I'm, you know, trying to figure out, um, you know, financial literacy and all these things, you know what I mean? Why wouldn't I want to just try to at least try, you know what I mean? Maybe they don't want to take it. And that's another point that I want to jump into right after, uh, you know, we, we close this one up, but you want to come back and, and help and, and give them at least some knowledge. You know what I mean? Like here, this is what you should do. Try to get yourself out of the, you know, out of this rut. Uh, you know, don't feel so, don't feel alienated. If you pick up a book, don't feel like, you know, if you go to school that, you know, you lost who you were and that's what gets me. Say we go back, right? Say we made it, we figured it all out, we go back. But are they going to listen? You know, or do they feel like we no longer belong there if we figured yeah. it out? I mean, honestly, that's, you know what I mean? That's, that's my biggest fear when it comes to like relating back to my community, right? Like I've been so far separated. And a lot of, in, in a lot of ways, and you know this very well, like, there's always someone and there's in one of these stories, I'm pretty sure I wrote a note somewhere, if not in my notebook, uh, on my phone. Like they say it's like a very brief mention where they're introducing Esperanza to the neighborhood. And one of the girls tells her, she's like, Oh, we used to talk to this girl, she was cool, but then she went to college, so we don't like her anymore. Or she doesn't like us anymore. Like regardless, like that that separation that happens, like there's this belief that like and I've heard it so many times, like uncles aunts like you know people in the neighborhood old friends they're like oh you know randy thinks he's better than us because he went to college or randy thinks he's better than us because he reads now or because he talks this way and i'm like like never once in my mind have i had that thought but it's like that's the divide that happens right it's like growing up we're we're forced to believe that only white people with money go to college only white people travel like either within the states or abroad, like Spain, we'd never go to Spain. Paris, we'd never go there. China, we'd never go there. There's belief that we weren't meant to succeed in any way. So that Puerto Rican dude and his brother, like them coming here to preach to us, like how do we know they didn't just sell out, right? And that's, that's the mentality is that you sold out. You gave up some part of yourself to make it here because the belief is you can't maintain both because they wouldn't accept you as you are, right? And I mean, in a lot of ways that's that holds weight. Like, I mean, I've moved through a lot of these circles and I feel like the more I move through them, like the more I lose like of myself, like because in some of those circles, you just can't talk about yourself. No one cares about your interests. No one wants to know what books you like. No one wants to know how you grew up, like what were customs at holidays? Like, you know, what's your brother like? What's your cousin like? You know, you have, you know, however many siblings, like, they, those those things don't matter because it's like we're here like the only thing we can relate to you on in their minds like is that we're in this university or that we got this fellowship you know we got this job together we're in this country but clearly like you grew up a different way so we're not really going to reach out that way and then you kind of mold to that and then in some ways you know you forget about your own experiences you forget about yourself and then you know when you're forced to go back to that you know it's it's jarring you feel like you're getting fucking whiplash you know like it's shocking and you just, it's hard to navigate. So, I mean, I don't think it's really a matter of like, will they listen? 
I think we're always looking for people like us who have experiences like ours, like to reach out and to share what it's like. But it's it's about doing so in a way that isn't dehumanizing, right? Like I'm going to keep going back to the point you made because, I, I mean, I think it's a perfect way to put it. It's like being dropped on another planet. Like that's dehumanizing. When you walk into a store and everyone stares at you as though you stole something, that's dehumanizing. When you walk even into a community and – People are eyeing you. They got you trembling. Like, that's dehumanizing. You feel like an animal in the crosshairs, right? And it's like, how do you reach out to your people while still making them or, yeah, leaving them feeling as though, like, they are as equal as you are? Like, you know, there's always going to be a disparity, right? We've experienced different things. Like, just relating in that way. Like, I think that's the task, right? Yeah, and it's like, you know, let's say... You know, it's been a few years. I come back to the old neighborhood and I start talking to my friends who are still there. You know, they say things like, man, you know, look at you. You know, you you got yourself a good job. You got your own house. Now you got a family. You know what I mean? And of course, they're happy for you, right? Like, you know, good. He made it out and all that, you know. But then come the other comments like, oh, man, you made it out of the hood. You too good for us now. You know, stuff like that. And, you know, then... People you grew up with, you grew up, you went through all these things with them together. That means we're on the same page. You know what I mean? Like, cause we, we come from the same background, but that's not how some people look at it because you're no longer in that. It, it goes, I guess, you know, they feel like, well, you're not the same anymore. You can't relate to us no more. You must've forgot. And I see here one of the notes where she says, like it or not, you are Mango Street. Right. Obviously, the name of the book is The House on Mango Street. It's where Esperanza lives. Uh, For those of you who have not read the book, uh, we could still throw the context into this wherever you're from. Right. Whether you're from Humble Park, whether you lived on Campbell or you hung hung out, you know, if you're me, you hung out on trip, like it or not, that's who you are. You know what I mean? Whether or not I stay here or I leave and try to, you know, see the rest of the world, I make it out, you know, quote unquote. But at the end of the day, I'm still from Humboldt Park. I'm still from the Hermosa area. I'm still from, you know, you know, trip. I'm still from there. And so that's me. So I feel when I go back and I talk to my friends and they're like, oh, well, you know, man, he, he lives in Joliet. He lives here. He lives there. It's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm, I still grew up here. You know, I'm still, you know, I it didn't disappear. Yeah. I'm not hiding it. But I did see more of the world. and. That's why that that question is like, you know, everyone when you're you know, what's crazy, the craziest part, you're sitting in the hood, you're poor, you know what I mean? Because that's what that's what it was for us. We're poor. You know, there were times I was, you know, legit homeless. You know what I mean? I'm hanging out with my with the guys because, you know, their mom's like, no, nah, we're not going to have him in the house. Well, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll be outside with him then. And we're sitting there and we're talking about like, man, you know, one day we're going to make it out of here, man. And we're going to yeah, come back. And have it's the always so right. I'm my homies all with me. You know, and then what happens is, is you find that when you start making those, those, those decisions and those changes to try, you know, you know, you went to college. I just went out on my own business ventures, you know what I mean? Trying to start a business, still working on it and stuff like that. Right. But the thing is, is we tried to get some more opportunity in our lives. We, we took what we could, you know, we, we crawl out ourselves, you know what I mean? To try to, you know, quote unquote, make it out, you know? We're still working on it, but even though, you know, I would not dare say I made it out, you know what I mean? 
I, I damn sure did not make it out. And I damn sure didn't forget. And while I still talk to a lot of my friends from the city, I don't hang with them or anything like that. Again, back to my point, you know, my associations were a lot more violent than some other people's. So for me, clearly, you know, hanging around is just not good news. Can't keep getting shot one day. One day it'll end me. But those same, you know, people you had that conversation with, I'm going to make it out. We're going to make it out one day. We're going to. But when you start trying to actually get out there, that it's like that link that you guys had, it's, it starts to, you know, it gets weak. It's like it, that it starts to rust and eventually it detaches. You guys just don't connect anymore. And, you know, to them, they feel like, you know, you left. You're not the same. You think you're better because, you know, again, you're reading now. You're in school or you think you're better. You got you got a legitimate business now. You know what I mean? And then here, you know, the person who, again, they feel thinks they're too good. Now they, after they've tried to navigate the world and realize that they're always, again, Mango Street, right? I'm always Mango Street. But so you leave and you feel like this is where you, you know, let's say belong, right? Because that's who you are. And the rest of the world, you feel like you, you that's not who you are, right? But then when you come back to where, you know, you came from, they feel like you're not that anymore. So now you're yeah. alienated everywhere. I, you, you came from here, but now you're not from there anymore either. So now you're, I guess, in this limbo, right? It leads back to like, what to do? What should we do? But that's also another reason why I think this book is like perfect for that. I'll be honest, dude. I read the introduction and I totally didn't pay so much mind to it. I read the intro and just kind of like jumped right into, you know, actually reading the vignettes. And that's what I was more focused on. I feel like the introduction is pretty powerful. I'm looking at the notes and we've been talking about it. And, you know, just dimensions again, Bucktown before it was discovered by folks with money. And, you know, she speaks about her younger self in the third person. She wants, you know, people who don't actually read books to enjoy these stories too. She doesn't want um, to write a book that, you know, some people won't understand. Hence won't continue to read or pick up, right? Again, you know, she's from the inner city. Um, you mentioned, and this was actually in the vignettes, I believe, uh, she mentioned when she first moved there, they started talking about someone like, um, she started reading books and she doesn't like us anymore. Yeah. Or she went to college or something like that, right? And it's essentially like her, you know what I mean? She wanted to write these stories, but she didn't want just, you know, like you, you, mm -hmm. you um, use the term highbrow, you know, like a highbrow readers and stuff like that. She didn't just want to cater to publishing companies and stuff like that. You know what I mean? She wanted to cater to her people, who she is. And that's why I feel like this is almost like a good way to be the medium, because I do feel like there's a big disconnect. People who leave um, their neighborhoods or, you know, are reading, trying to get um, a better education because it's so, yeah. I want to say frowned upon, I mean, to be definitely. honest. You know, you've grown up in a household and like, it's, it's frowned upon, you know what I mean? Look, man, I ain't like school at all. I'm not like pushing for college education or anything like that. But also at the same time, I do feel like part of that is because, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the neighborhood and they, they just straight up like, it's like having an education. You just thought you were too good for the rest of us. And I don't think that's the case. Yeah. And there's a huge. Yeah. And I think a lot, I mean, a lot of that does come back to like the conversation about poverty, right? It's like, Walking into, like, I know in high school, at least, like, when we lived off Fullerton and Costner, 
there was almost never food in the house somehow, some way, like with food stamps, with extra assistance, like, you know, by the last week of the month, there was never food there. And you start to look at your friends who like, for instance, like in my case, Anthony, like my friend, Anthony, I'd go there like to hang out. Sometimes he'd be with friends I didn't like, but I'm like, there's food here because his mom is rich. So there's always food in the crib. They have all the new devices. They have the newest phones. He always has the new game system. I'm like, and then it kind of causes you in some ways, like when you see them doing so well, because I know in my case, it was like this, like when you see them enjoying a meal, right? You see them splurging on getting food outside. Like, you know, you see them going to a restaurant to eat. And when you get invited, see how they spend, like, you're like, why the fuck aren't we living this way? Right. It's like, obviously, like they did something differently. And again, the mentality is always like they sold out in some way because there's this huge financial disconnect. It's a huge resource disconnect. And then you don't really feel as though you have a place there. And I think that's where this whole like people call it crabs in the barrel mentality. But I think that's assuming that, you know, again, they don't want you to make it out. But when it comes to college, it's like even in my case, like I had to take out tens of thousands of dollars in loans. Right. Which I'm going to be paying back the rest of my life just to get the same education as some dude who didn't work as hard as I did. Right. But that's never like you never that picture is never painted because, you know, like people like us don't talk about it because I know people like us actually experience it. So I think like going on that point um, and the point of Alicia and I talking on that in the steps, like always being Mango Street, I wanted to talk really quickly about identity. I feel like, at least like growing up in a place, I think it might just be a Chicago thing. I don't think it's an inner city thing, but I mean, you might have a different opinion, but it seems like everybody has a nickname, like literally everybody. And if you don't got a nickname, like we're just going to be like, I, right, you know, that's Edna's Ruthie, right? Like this is, what's this guy's name? Like she has, there's Gerardo, no last name. And I'm going to come back to that one. Cause I think that one's important. That's Davy the baby's brother. Like, there's always something attached to the names, right? Like, they can't just be what they are. We always assign something to people. And I think identity, like, even the chapter she talks about hair, she talks about her own name, which is Esperanza, right? In Spanish, it means to hope. But she says that she doesn't feel hope. She actually just feels sad because she feels like being a woman in Mexican culture is sad. And this is why, right? Like, we're forced to stay in marriages with people we don't actually love. We're forced to help the men in our family, but they don't really help us in return, right? And she talks a lot about other women experiencing abuse at the hands of their men, um, their partners who are supposed to be their partners anyway. So yeah, I wanted to touch on that. and wanted to see what you thought about um, the identities of characters in the book and why you think she focused so heavily on that. Yeah, so for sure, Everybody I talk to has a nickname. I mean, dude, I was just getting, you know, it was to a point where I was just calling people by whatever I could remember them by, and it stuck because I was hanging out in the hood so much. You know, my friend, damn, what's his His name's Dominic, right? I don't think I've ever in my life called him Dominic. I know that this is his name because he, yeah. like, you know, changed his Instagram name to Dominic or some shit, you know? Um, he had these, these prescription <laughs> Ray-Bans glasses. Did not know his name for shit, bro. He's a little dude. I'd be like, yo, man, where the fuck is Ray-Bans at? Everyone knew who he was. He had the Ray-Bans on. Yeah, it's like you know finding I mean? something. It's like, all right, we know everybody is going to pinpoint it. 
Bro, everybody was calling him Dominic, and then out of nowhere, everyone starts calling him Ray-Bans, right? All of a sudden, he changes his <laughs> Instagram name to I'm Ray-Bans. So everyone knows this is what we're talking about. No bullshit, right? And, dude, it just sticks. And you ever just talk to someone, and they're like, oh, you know, they call me Paco. What's his name? You think it's like, you know, yeah, Francisco or some shit. No, bro, that's not even his name. What happened was is I thought his name was Paco. So we started calling that. Now, to this day, they just introduced him as Paco. The man changed his Facebook name to Paco, right? And it's just it's literally, that's just how it is. But then we grow up with, and we keep these names, right? And that just becomes, like, who they are. And some of them have these, like, super wild stories. There's some of the people are like, oh, that's Gordo. He was fat once upon a time. Or, like, uh, actually, it's in the vignette. Um, the same is, he's fat boy, though up. he's not fat she anymore. No, our boy. Exactly. You know, he was fat as hell when he was in eighth grade or something. And they've been calling him fat boy since then. He's tall as hell, slim, and he's a grown man, but everybody knows him as fat boy. And that's the thing. I feel like, yeah, everyone has a nickname. Sometimes it's random. And again, sometimes let's just use um, Eddie. There'll be two Eddies and you'll be like, Eddie, which one? Ruthie's Eddie. Because we just attach people to what we can, you know, Whatever we know them from. And in a neighborhood, there's so many people, only so many people, but it's kind of like, well, you just kind of personalize everybody. You know what I mean? That goes back to the same thing. Why when you're in a, when you're in your neighborhood, you're comfortable because you know everybody, but you don't just know them by their name. You know them by their nicknames, which if you ask me is more intimate than just knowing someone's, you know, yeah, you have a first real name, connection or, you know what I mean? It's not like a, it's not it a becomes, anymore. Exactly. And so I feel like when, when it goes into identity, it's really easy to identify yourself growing up, how we grew up in, on your nickname, because that's what everybody yeah. knows you as. That's who you are. That's how like, that's like your fucking defining characteristic and shit. Like, oh man, that's, you know, that's cool though. He was fat. That, that, that's silent. You know, you don't talk too much. That's just how they know you. You know what I mean? So that becomes like who you are. Like when someone asks you what, um, like, what's your name? You probably don't even tell them your real name. Or if you do, you say, I'm so-and-so, but they call me. Yeah, it's like, like they always, it goes back That's to because, like, you really take that. It's like, my people call me this. Yeah, exactly. And so, now that you mention that, not only is it, like, you know, uh, you know, my guys, they call me this, everybody calls me that. But that's back to identity. Just now that you mention it, I'm really thinking about now, that's how you find, like, that's how you define yourself for so long. Like, yeah, they call me this. You know, for them, they call me silent, right? So, yeah, that becomes who you are. That's you. That right, th that name. Like, you can attach who you are to a nickname. And, yeah, like, that becomes your soul. Like, that is your identity. You know what I mean? That's who you are. You're not fucking, you know, Nelson, whatever. You're, you're, you know, you're silent. You're Gogo. You're, you're, you're this. That's who you are. You got that name. And, yeah, that becomes who you are. And I feel like it, maybe people are lost in that. Sometimes, you know what I mean? With their identity, kind of zeroing in on, maybe just yeah. zeroing in on that characteristic or maybe where you got it from, you know? Thinking about it now, don't nobody call me by my nickname anymore, but that's because I'm not over there. But I'll tell you this, not, you know, I wouldn't, maybe a year or so ago, I was just, I happened to be in the area, I hopped out to buy a fucking elote and shit, right? And then everyone's like, hey, yo, what's up, silent? This, this, that. And it's crazy to think, damn, these motherfuckers ain't seen me in like two, three years. When I come back, I'm not, you know, as you know, my family and most of the time I, I, when I meet people outside of like school and work and shit, you know, I tell mm. them, you know, my name's Malik, whatever. And obviously if you know me from the neighborhood, they call me silent, you know, but 
bro, I introduce myself as Nelson these days. So it's almost weird to hear it. Oh, it was up, silent. You know what I mean? And I immediately like jump back into like another feel, another world. Hell, I'm even like I'm having a totally different structured conversation than I've had in yeah, like two, I mean, three it's that years. Code you know what like, I mean? You don't you don't really think about um, it. It's like it's a different language. Just exactly. Boom, you're in it. Exactly. But yeah, like you said, code switch. I transformed back into who I was. It's not like I was acting or anything. That's who I it's who I am. Again, you're always mango street, right? Like I I didn't I laughed and you know, nobody calls me my nickname, none of that shit. But I came back to, you know, to my old neighborhood and that's who I am. Yeah, it's one of those you things like, I mean, you, like, I mean, you um, just, and I, you have like coming from a space like that and then going, say, like into a workplace and then still interacting with your family, but not within that neighborhood. Like there's so, like, it's not even, there are so many identities. There's just so many facets, right? So many layers to your individual identity. It's like there's sub, it's like there's subcategories, you know, like, in this setting, this comes out. In this setting, that comes out. So I'm like, when I was in school, there, you know, I talked a certain way. This is college Randy. In the neighborhood, this is just what I consider just Randy, right? Or I guess now even like a mix of the two. In certain settings, I know I can't say certain things because people wouldn't understand them. And you just know that. It's like, you don't really, I mean, sometimes you slip, but you don't really think about it. Like, I'm back in the neighborhood. I'm silent now. It's not, okay, let me prep myself. Let me get, like, it's not acting, you know? Like some people may feel that way. Like, you know, this, this person's putting on a performance, but it's like, man, like you don't get a choice, right? Like this is just you. Like you have, they're not even roles. You just have, I mean, they're not roles in terms of like acting roles, but they can be roles in terms of like what you have to do in order to survive in your life, whatever surviving may mean, right? It doesn't have to always be dire. It's just a matter of like, how do I survive socially? Like and maintain my nucleus, maintain my social structure, it's fabric, like the people in that without ostracizing anybody. Like it's one of those things where, I mean, I think that's why I always say like, people from the hood are probably the most talented people I've ever met in my life. Like, cause they can navigate any damn circumstance. Like, as they're constantly forced to, like you're just jumping back and forth. And it's like, you know, you're socially hustling at that point and you don't even realize it. Yeah. Like you said, it's not like acting, uh, you know, you, you could say adapting or just, you know, like you said, I come back, I go back to the neighborhood and someone's like, yo, what's up, Silent? That's who I am, bro. I've always, that's me. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't turn, I didn't go and I'm like, man, I'm about to get this a little bit, but if someone starts talking to me, you know what I'm saying? I got to, nah, dude, I talk like this all the time, you know? Of course, there's conversations I'm not having, you know, in the workplace. There's shit I'm not saying, you know, but at the same time, like, one thing I'm certain of is no one would ever be, if I talk to someone and they've been, you know, from the neighborhood, they know. Yeah. This guy's from around here um, because I'm not thinking about it. I'm not acting. I don't, you know what I mean? I'm not like trying to talk a certain way. I just am who I am. But also that, that goes to show like uh, when I was in the neighborhood, I felt like I couldn't relate to anybody else or like no one else would even like really want to talk to me or understand me because like, I'm just a motherfucker from the hood. You know what I mean? I come to find bro. I talk to people of all circles. And of course you still get the look. Some people, for example, I wasn't even sure that this was going to be an explicit podcast yeah, or not, but I can't help but curse, right? But this is how I talk, right? You know what I mean? So it's like, fuck it. We ain't too deep now. So, um, yeah, it goes, goes back to that. You know, some people I talk to don't like yeah. the swear. You know what I mean? You can see that they're uncomfortable, but hey, look, man, at the end of the day, man, this is who I am. I am who I am. It's not like I'm coming at you crazy, but if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. Hell, even in high school... The teacher's like, don't swear, don't this, don't that. At some point, they just kind of like, you know what, this guy just is who he is. And I like to think, you know, 
I had good relationships with my teachers. I still talk to my teachers now. Uh, and I still curse like a motherfucker, right? But it's just the little things. Like some people really do leave like they're, you know, they leave their comfort zone and they and they are trying to talk different, sound different to, you know, like blend in. I don't feel like that's my case, especially not when I'm coming back to the neighborhood. But again, that goes back to what you said, identity. If you ask me, anyone asks you who you are, I'm like, shit, I'm from Chicago. I come from the hood. I shit you not, yeah. bro. That's just the shit that comes I mean, to same. my mind, bro. It's not like, I'm not saying it like, you know, maybe it's not like a badge of honor or nothing like that. But at the same time, bro, I'm not ashamed of it. That's who I am. That's who I came from. But again, that goes back to I- identity. Like you said, man, that's who I am. And I, yeah, they, they call me silent. I shit you not, bro. If I meet someone in the hood, man, and I'm talking, I'm like, yeah, man, you know, my name is Nelson, man. But the people around here, they call me silent, bro. And that's it. That's probably the last time I expect them to ever call me Nelson. Fuck it. That's who I am. It's back to, you know, identity. And one thing that I'm glad you mentioned was, um, you know, there's a lot of talented people. People in the hood are like, like extremely talented. Whether, you know, we're navigating the world socially, we're all trying to figure it out. Um, and another reason why I think this is a great medium is, you know, for the people who are really out there, like focusing on their skills and shit and secret, whether they're reading, hell, watching anime, doing all this crazy shit that people do. And, you know, there's people out there like focusing on skills, you know, a lot of people are into rap, but there's motherfuckers who can sing uh, all kinds of shit. I mean, even then, like, I mean, dance. you got not, like, like, these shorties, like, 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 they're writing the raps, like they're writing the songs. So, like, you know, they have lyrical abilities. Yeah, like, I mean, exactly. The poems together, you know, but like. Exactly. There, there's people, you know, throwing up fucking you know, short stories and shit in the journal that they're hiding from their, or their even their closest friends because their closest friends are, of course, going to be like, man, get that shit out of here, bro. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? It's That's like, why are you wasting your time you know writing I mean? when you could be doing um, this instead? But like, like, exactly. And I find that, man, a, a lot of people get... Get discouraged. Yeah, and they get caught up in that identity. They get caught up in that, you know, let's use the nickname for the example. Yeah, like they, they can't move beyond like, like the borders shit, of that. You know, or... The confines of it. Exactly. And pretty much at some point down the line, I'm going to jump into um, the vignette, um, a smart cookie where, you know, it starts off pretty much, I guess, a a conversation with her with her mother. Right. Yeah. She says, I could have been somebody, you know, my mother says in size, she has lived in the city her whole life. She can speak two languages. She can sing an opera. She knows how to fix TV, but she doesn't know which subway train to take to get downtown. Um, I'm not actually going to read the whole thing, but as soon as I open, I turn this page and I start to read this vignette, man. And just, I could have been somebody, you know, I shit you not. I'm thinking my mom used to say shit all the fucking time. I mean, ev- like everybody, um, like, you know. it's just thinking like all the people who have, exactly. I mean, who still have, like, that's the thing, like who still have like all this potential, like they just get weighed down by I mean, either by the poverty or by the fear of being, you know, ostracized by the community for going to school and studying, I don't fucking know, dance, for going, in my case, to study creative writing, right, to do poetry. Like, there's so many things, like, boggling people down, and I feel like that's, like, it's it's one of the most unfortunate things, like, is, you know, people, like, they, they like to fixate on the violence a lot. Like, it does play a major role. Like, you can't downplay that as much as you want to. But I think by fixating on the violence, a lot of people downplay, like, how many people are in these communities with potential and how often their growth is stunted, their opportunity is stunted 
by some trivial shit, right? It's like, I can't afford to pay my phone bill, so I missed the call that could have got me that job interview. Like, I've been there. I can't afford to take the bus up, you know, up north, downtown. I don't even know which train to take to get downtown. And it's like, you're so afraid to ask. And even beyond that, like, again, there's a lack of resources. Like, her mom, she can sing an opera, but she probably has never sung in front of someone who could have given her, you know, a connection, could have made a connection, be like, you know, you should go to this school and audition there, probably get a scholarship, and you can become, you know, one of the world's greatest singers. One of the best singers in your city, even, right? It doesn't have to be in this grand scale, but there's so many people. They just get boggled down and stunted and never really get to realize that potential. And that's that's another generational thing, right? You have the generational poverty. It's like the heirlooms that we get are the dreams that never manifested from our parents. Like that whole idea of the American dream. It's like, well, for my family, it's a nightmare. Like we're living through, it's like fucking Groundhog Day. Like we're living through the same thing over and over and over and over again. The story is continuing, but it's not, you know, it's a repetition. Like we can't really break out of this narrative. So we're never gonna find an ending to it, right? And it, it, it puts this, I think, in a lot of ways, like an unfair amount of pressure on our generation, right? Because we feel like, you know, my family's been struggling for six generations and all of them, you know, all of them could have been somebody. All of them had these opportunities, but something happened. Like, I finally have to break through that. Like, you know, like, but we don't know what that looks like. We don't know how to create that. Yeah, you know, it's like, like you said, we got, you know, six generations of could have been, could have been, could have been. So what makes us so different what is going to happen that writes the final page in our could have been story? Like, well, I could have been this, but this happened. It's like what we pass down generationally is just a shit ton of broken dreams. That's what we inherit from our family. We inherit poverty and, and the stories of what could have been. And so we, we, we're stuck with two options, right? We could continue to pass these could have been down the line, right? Or we could somehow figure out how to be something from the start we're already getting ready for our yeah, could have been trained story. for it exactly because myself and every one of my friends is hearing the different version of the same story so we all come and we're all getting ready for our could have beens so we take that and we start telling everyone like man you know you're a good writer but come on let's be real bro yeah Ain't nobody going to read that, that. You want to make rap songs, but you ain't going to make it, man. You don't got it. So just, you know, go back to your regular job. Yeah, bro. Everybody's a SoundCloud rapper. Look, man, everyone has something to say about what you're doing. I agree and disagree to a certain extent on on both ends when they're like, oh, you know, these people are hating and stuff like that. You know, a lot of your people, the problem is a lot of your guys who are telling you this stuff, they feel like they're throwing you a bone. They feel like they're helping you out. They're telling you, hey, man, let's just be real, though, bro. It just ain't gonna happen. It don't happen for people like us. And while you're thinking, man, that's discouraging, dude. You're putting me down, bro. You're not supporting me. You're not here for me right now. But at the same time, they're just thinking, like, man, all of you know, my mom, she could have been something. My dad could have been someone. His dad could have been someone. But something always happens. It's just not meant for us. We're not cut out for that life. We're not the one in the million. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one in the million point because I think it, there's always this mentality that there can only be one of us, right? In the entire community, out of everyone we know, out of, again, like to use the metaphor of a nucleus that can make it out and do something spectacular. 
and actually accomplish what they want to accomplish. And part of it has to do with like coming from a place where like so many of these stories are told. So they just build up and they kind of mount on you and you're carrying them on your shoulders. Like they're wearing on your back. You feel like you have to do something extraordinary to get this thing out. So we always think like when I become a writer, I want to sell fucking 50 million copies in my career. Most writers don't do that. And a lot of writers are successful. As a musician, like, I need to blow up and make, like, 20 mil in the first two years. That's probably not going to happen. I think we're forced to just, again, due to, like, how exacerbated our struggles are compared to the average person. Because we're definitely not in the average group, right? When we look at statistics, like, economically, we ain't there in the average And in terms of just general, like, death rates, in terms of, you know, poverty, in terms of access to schools and resources, like, we definitely in the middle range. But I think a lot of that contributes to, again, that mentality that it has to be one in a million. And when you believe that it has to be one in a million, everybody in the community believes that, you know, the response you're going to hear is you're not going to make it. Like, just give up now. Mom was smart enough to give up when she was, like, 25. And just leave it at that. Like, just do what you're good at. Like, it's it's unfortunate that every... When people in the inner city or people who are impoverished, when they have a dream, it's a pipe dream. But when people with means, people who grow up, I mean, in our case, grow up on the north side, right? When they have a dream, it's attainable. It's reasonable. That's what they should be doing, right? And it just, again, it kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about the American dream kind of being a nightmare. It's like, why is it a dream for them? And it ends out wonderfully. And if not, they got to change gears, but they're still doing fine. And for us, it had to end terribly. Like, we end sad. We're telling, you know, half-written stories to our children when we should be giving them a full narrative. But we don't know the full narrative. Right? Like, it shouldn't take seven generations to write one story. Like, these motherfuckers are doing it in a few years. Like, but it's that, that one in a million mentality, I think, is definitely something that holds us back. I definitely agree. I feel like the one in a million thing is one of it's I would put it at the top of the list. If you ask me, like when someone is getting ready to quit, it's the one in a million thing. There's no way it's going to be me. That, that, that shit's like, you know, that shit's one in a million. And if you think about it like that, and I do feel like one of the main reasons, like you said, they're like talking, like I got to make 20 mil my first year. And it's like, we set these arbitrary goals for ourselves. And then we put ourselves at our own impossible task just because of the timelines. Yeah. It contributes to long-term sorrow in a lot of ways. Exactly. We're like 17. Like, bro, when I'm 19, I need to make 30 mil on this. Like, come on, bro. Let's just be, let's just be realistic for a second. And that's the thing. Once we get to that point where we're saying, oh, let's be realistic. We're, we're, we're jumping into the negative though. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm just going to brand myself. Or I'm just going to write my rough draft because let's just not focus on like rappers and stuff, you know, or or dancers. You know, I'm going to write my rough draft. You know, I'm going to send it out to some people. Hell, I'm going to jump on Wattpad because they're over here selling shit to Hulu and all kinds of crazy shit on Wattpad these days. I'm just going to put it out there. You know, I get to own the copyrights. And if I, you know, I'm typing it up as it goes. People are commenting. You know what I mean? People are telling me. And uh, if someone really likes it and it pops, I might get a book deal. I might get get it published. Yeah, it's not going to sell millions and millions of copies but it's going to be a published book, right? Hell, or maybe it's not even going to get published, but I'm going to write that shit anyway. Setting things that that should be the realistic tone. But because we stop and think, damn, this shit's not going to take me out of here next year. I got to do what I can to survive in here. 
And so that goes back to the point that we've been trying to, you know, make or just zeroing in on identity. That's like the looking in the mirror conversation for ourselves. Let's get back to reality. This is who I am. I'm not that one in a million. So I need to do something so I could survive as best I can here. Because I could have been somebody, but I wasn't born up north. I could have been somebody, but people like me, they don't get, you know, they don't have those opportunities. So I could have been somebody, but I was born, uh, you know, Hispanic in, in, in a poverty stricken neighborhood. Yeah, I do think that I think, you know, a lot of that comes back to the education we get. Right. It's like where we're constantly I mean, you, you've been in enough classrooms where you've been told by teachers that either you ain't smart enough or that you're wasting your time because you're not going to become anything anyway. It's why, like, in hip-hop, or even, I mean, writers of color talk about it a lot. I mean, Sandra Cisneros, like, I met her, I want to say it was 2017, um, when she was speaking at the University of Iowa, because she got her master's degree there. And I told her that I grew up in Chicago, and she was like, oh, no shit, where'd you grow up? And I told her that I grew up at Humboldt Park, and then she looked at me, and she asked, which street? And I said, you know, I spent a decent amount of time in Campbell and Lemoyne. And if you read the introduction, like she literally gives the address where she lived on Campbell. She lived a street up from us. Like she says she went to Diego, Jose Diego, the middle school. We went to Von Humboldt. And she's like, you know, Von Humboldt was seen as the bad school then. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's still seen as the bad school now. And it's closed now. So I guess it's not seen as anything anymore. But she was telling me about how. She has this thing called the Macondo Writers Project. And Macondo is a, it's like a fictional city made up by the Nobel Prize winner Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 100 Years of Solitude. And, you know, they help writers from the Latino community, like, you know, get their work out there through workshops and things like that, most of which are free. So if anyone's interested, that's very accessible. But she was telling me how even at the University of Iowa, she's like, I'd already gotten my bachelor's degree from Loyola in Chicago. I'd already surpassed, like, any expectations held of me, like, in my neighborhood. But when she got to Iowa, she's like, there were teachers there, and there were even students there in her workshops that were just saying, like, you know, these stories really aren't interesting. Like, we don't really care about this girl, Esperanza. Like, we don't want to hear about people in the inner city dealing with poverty. We don't want to hear about women dealing with abuse. We don't want to hear about Geraldo with no last name, how he died when he came to the United States and his family thinks he's doing well there, but really, you know, he was suffering. It's one of those things like where everyone on the planet, like not even just in your community sometimes because they don't like, we don't know how to support each other because we've never gotten support generationally and systematically. But like, even outside of that, like it, it really takes a lot in an individual that comes from them circumstances to say, like, I'm going to look past all this shit that is being dumped on top of me. Like, cause it literally feels like you're just laying in the grave and people are just dumping shit on you. And I'm going to look past all of that. And I'm still going to make this thing because I feel that my people need it. Right. Like, and I think that's what the mentality needs to be like going back, like just tying it all together. We were saying earlier, like, should you feel obligated to go back to the circumstances you were born into when they weren't particularly good for you, when they don't bring back good memories. And it's like, you don't always have to walk back in there. I don't really walk back in there because my associations with it, I'm like, I just feel like in a lot of ways, I mean, it does bring me a lot of trauma. I think about it very often, but like my solution is like, I want to write about it, illuminate it for people 
and create a voice, right? Like Santos Cisneros did. Like, and hopefully I can do that. But like, say I write my first book, hopefully it gets published. It doesn't sell. Well, fuck it. I'm gonna write the second book then. Like one of these books is gonna sell, right? But even at the end of the day, like if they don't, like I'm still gonna have my regular job. I'm gonna do my thing. But someone is writing these stories that people need to hear. Like I refuse for my destiny to be like saying, you know, I could have been a writer, but these things happen. Like, no, I'm going to be a writer. I am a writer. But we just have to accept that in a lot of ways, like the system is rigged against us and we ain't going to have the same breaks as other people have. We're not going to sell out the same way other authors do, read white authors do. Sometimes you just have to throw the shit out there. Like people have to hear it. And if it's your own people, maybe one of your boys, a girl from your class, your daughter, like maybe they'll write something that's as powerful, more powerful, and they'll get the break you were hoping to get, right? And they'll break through those barriers. And then those stories will be there. And then people will appreciate yours more and hers more. Like, I think that's what the mentality needs to be, ultimately. I agree. Touching up on that, it does it does wrap everything up well. And my answer to that question is, do you have to go back? Uh, you know, I agree with Randy. You don't have to. A lot of your experiences are going to be horrible for you. You know what I mean? Me, personally, when I think about going back, I almost lost my life there plenty of times. But my, also my answer to the question is, is that I am still trying to come back and make that difference. But I also will point out that, you know, I was heavy into sports and stuff like that. And I was like more deeper involved in the community where I was constantly trying to figure out whether I was going to be one of the bad, one of the worst stereotypes of the neighborhood. I was going to try to make something of myself. And I was at those crossroads and it was my teachers who helped me. Funny thing, I dropped out of high school, got my GED, so I didn't go to college or anything like that. Um, sports was a big thing for me, and um, unfortunately, I got shot a few times, separate occasions, to make matters worse. I, I have a lot of injuries, so sports isn't really a big thing for me, but I do. Uh, that's my voice. I, I'm trying to get into the world through through sports for you know these, these inner city youths, um, but that's what I think the most important thing is. It's like Randy said, even if he writes these books and yeah, maybe they don't sell and he's living his, you know, his regular life with his job and stuff like that, but he's still writing them. But that is the point that I think that's the takeaway from this is that we are our own voice just because these people don't want to, you know, whoever it is, whoever these people are for you, the listeners out there, just because they, they don't want to listen. They aren't interested. That doesn't mean that you don't have a voice. We're not the one in a million. Yeah, maybe those goals are arbitrary, so that might be the one in a million scenario. But one thing that you do have control of is that you don't have to tell the story to your kids that you could have been somebody. You could be that person. That's like the best part about this book. This is a book about a young Latina girl in Chicago figuring out who she wants to be and who she's going to be. If we could all just figure out who we want to be and just shape it out to who we're going to be, we could get rid of the I could have been somebody story. And so the answer is, is pretty much that decision is yours. Do you want to go back or you don't want to? But remember, we could all be a voice like Randy says. Randy's going to write about it. Some of you guys are going to draw about it. Some of you guys are going to speak about it. Some of you guys are going to sing about it. Some of you guys are going to go back. But we all have a voice and we all have to, you know, represent ourselves. And we all need to understand that, you know, whether it's breach, you know, branching out or going to college, that doesn't take away from who we are, where we came from, and that we all can relate. And for those of us who have forgotten that, 
or had never really truly known it, I encourage you to pick up the book, give it a read. Doesn't matter where you open this book, you are likely to relate to most, if not all, of these vignettes here. Randy mentioned, what is it called? The Macondo Project? Yeah. Macondo Foundation, um, I believe. The Macondo Foundation. Um, for any of you guys writing, uh, you know, was it Latino writers, Hispanic writers in the city? No, just in the country in general. In the country in general, well, we will have a link to that in, in the show notes for you guys who are interested. We'll make sure to put that out there. Um, so make sure to look down on that. We'll make sure to look for some um, some foundations, organizations, some links for you guys to click on to get um, a little more details on that if you want. Of course, we'll leave a link for you guys to buy the house on Mango Street, obviously, to give it a read. Unless, you know, you have it like in a tote or something because you didn't read it in school <laughs> like I did. So whatever way you guys can get your hands on it, you guys should. It's a read that's not challenging um, as far as like terminology and stuff. There's no crazy ass words and all, nothing like that. Um, again, the vignettes are, are very, very short and to the point. You could pick it up and never feel overwhelmed. Um, so it's definitely a good start. And, you know, I encourage you as you're reading, you know, and you're finding those, the, uh, and, you know, you're capturing those, those, um, those words, those sentences, those moments in, in the story that you relate to, I encourage you to just write them down. Let us know which ones impacted you. You know, they hit on a different level for you. Let us know, you know, where it is and, and why it did. Uh, we'll have a link to, you know, our Instagram in the, in the description. So you guys could really just let us know, throw some comments out there and, and really tell us how you relate to this story and how you're going to change your I could have been story to who you are going to be. That's all for me. Randy, you got anything you want to tie into that? No, I think you summed it up nicely. Again, just going off the point of who you want to be. Um, just thinking of like what we look for in literature. Esperanza, her name is Hope in English, or means hope in English, and she's bringing hope back to Mango Street, right? There's just something to think about when you're painting yourself as, you know, with a particular image, as Sandra Cisneros did when she made Esperanza of herself and of other people. She spoke into existence what she wanted it to be. And, you know, this being her first book, she became that. Right? It's one of the best-selling books of all time. But, yeah, you pick up House on Mango Street uh, with the links we provide below or preferably at your local bookshops because during the pandemic, they certainly need any support they can get. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Signing out, guys.